But I did want to say, and, and maybe as, and I'm really interested to hear what's going on in Denver, um, and though this is a bit of like a smaller audience, one of the, the harder parts when I watch the movie Palliative um, is that there's a story behind the story that I think is missing a little bit. And in fact, as I was like kind of going through, and you know, most of my patients, like I can tell you like names and siblings and everything, but um, when the film came out, um, almost every patient in the film was still alive. And it was weird because it was a film about dying and people think um, about palliative care and dying and like we, like even we already so far this conversation has been that and it's about starting at the end. But actually so many patients and families, both in pediatrics and the adult world, are living with like chronic illness and they're at risk of dying at any time. And that idea of being in this constant state for years and, and trying to balance the joys and the parties and the dances and that constant fear, like you don't know to what tomorrow will bring. So Noah's mom kind of near the end was like, we don't know how much time we're going to get. And for all of us to think the hard parts of living life like that but maybe what the rest of us can learn that that we sh like that we need like to to really value the time we have, and like some of in the film, like there's just little moments. Um, Martin's mom talks about how blessed she is just to be able to care for him, to to have somebody need her. Um, that Giovanni's mom like takes off his sock and like his cute little club foot, and as opposed to looking at abnormalities, signs of illness or disability, seeing like the, the love, the beauty in that. But I just think trying to understand that struggle and really put yourself in, in that place, which I don't think we talk as much about, is what it's like to be chronically ill. Um, and, and to also encourage people to, to recognize those people also. Um, not the people that are minutes, hours, days from dying, but those people that are at any moment a year or an hour away from dying. Or and like that that thought process. And I wish like you like to expand this. And so it's interesting because I feel like the the dying in um, the New York Times version was very dying focused. Palliative care kind of the palliative movie opens it up, it shows our party, our, our Princess Azura, it shows some of that joy. But I almost, like, I want that bigger movie that's so much more complex about all the nuances of caring for people in all these different states of health. So I thought I would share that. And then, as I was reflecting, like, and I was asked already, just a little bit else about my worldview, and maybe when I talk about things like the humanity of dying, um, that I really do think, um, first of all, very quickly, I was, I was raised atheist in a, an Italian family, so that's a little unusual. And my village that I'm from in Italy was actually Pope John Paul's favorite vacation place. And it was filled with a bunch of atheists, and it was a kind of a, a comical little stories that we have from that. And, um, and I really lacked um, the kind of a religious foundation. But when I was in high school, um, and I was already planning to go into medicine, I had some foresight kind of reflecting on your question that people, like if I'm going to take care of sick people, sick people and dying people turn to God. And I didn't know a lot about what that meant. And so in my undergraduate um, studies at college, my undergraduate degree was actually in comparative religion, which again, uh, no offense to the chemists here, I use significantly more than my organic chemistry um, classes. Um, but kind of reflecting on, on that, you know, I kind of look at a human being, you know, I'm, I'm maybe like an evolutionist. I, I, um, I'm, I, I'm a naturalist. I, I like learning about animals and all these things. And what I always like to think is that what really separates human beings from every other species um, is that we are a bit counter-evolution. What I mean by that is, like, we kind of, like, throw the survival of the fittest out the window. So, though the antelope who has a little um, foal with a club foot might leave that foal for the hyenas um, somewhat heartlessly or kick the sick baby bird out of the nest, what is unique about human beings is we, we love 
the sick and the elderly and the like we we embrace that part of society i i do think probably from a scientific or evolutionary or like fully logical perspective it's probably not great for our species um but it's what makes it it's that's to me where humanity is or where god is or where love is it allows me a lot to think of it that way and so i really do feel like in my work and watching the care of the sick and that that's nurses doctors it's people that are willing to be at the bedside of somebody who is suffering is that's humanity that is like the that's what's so unique to us and needs to be embraced and i think what my self care is i get to see it every day like i feel like i get to see the magic or the soul or the spirit um in in the care that i do because it's that part that that despite everything that really we shouldn't care for like we should be flippant we just like like human beings are a renewable resource like just have another now we're going to have a lot more baby babies around um um that we can just just love um so anyway i just thought i would share that as some of the questions that you guys asked i was already thinking about it um but but that's what i hope for people and that when you see in this and when we connect on these levels we share our sadnesses we find joy in places where there isn't joy that hope springs eternal and it's not always just hope for survival it's hope for for connection and like that that love that is more than just the like the the science that you you make my you know life you know more that like i can replicate um, and our species will survive through you so that is my my thoughts and i thought i would share that um and and um i think that's kind of it i that was a it. but it, again even now just so you know in that film there's still about um six of the patients that you saw still alive um and many um passed away just in the last year um that was just kind of a, a hard year for Keith I think maybe because people stopped coming um, anyway, I've been the bereavement coordinator at Children's Hospital Colorado for just a little bit over 8 years. Is that all or do you want me to give more? Or? We'll stop there. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dora Mueller and I am the specialty palliative coordinator over at Children's Hospital Colorado. Um I've also been a nurse for 30 years. Yeah, I'm giving away my age and a little older than the rest of these guys. And I also have been in hospice and palliative care for adults and pediatrics for approximately, I'd say 15 years of my life. My name's Kim Bennett. I am a pediatric and adult hospice and palliative uh physician. I was an intensivist in the pediatric ICU for about 15 years before I went to fellowship into hospice and palliative medicine. um and i did it for a lot of the reasons um that dr shamani has has spoken about um and and just i guess the only thing i'd add for those of you who are wondering about the field and about how it fits there is unrelenting disease as an intensivist it was really hard to acknowledge unrelenting disease right you can do everything right 
you have two patients with the same illness, you do everything the same for each of them. One of them survives and does great, one of them dies, right? It's unrelenting disease. And I think it was, it's palliative care and it's, it's physicians being able to talk about it and to face it and not be afraid of it that helps people have as few regrets as possible for the experience that they have, whether they live or whether they die, right? The experience they have through the healthcare system, they should all get as few regrets as possible. Thank you. So let's have to start out with the gas if we can. Your experience is mostly focused on families, is that correct? Especially after some past tests. Can you share some of your insights on, you know, what is the families to go through grief? What are things that we as clinicians, many of us in the audience are clinicians, what we should know about uh, interacting with families who might be toward the end of life? And what is the risk? Yeah, so um, one of the things I learned fairly quickly, um, I trained at Judy's house, my clinical internship was at Judy's house, um, doing play therapy for children who've experienced the death of somebody important to them. Um, and then I was placed into an adult grief support group and found that that was really where I thrived. And so I came in kind of thinking, okay, there's a learning curve here, but I, I know what to expect. I've done grief before. I worked at Department of Human Services and with families who had termination of parental rights, and I worked with both sides, and I've got a good baseline. And I remember going into my first group and leaving and being like, what the heck did I just sign up for? Um, it's just a much more intense grief. It's intensely personal. There's something about the attachment relationship between a parent and a child that is different and evolutionary designed to be stronger, right? Um, and so a lot of what I've spent the last eight years doing is just simply being there for parents um, who have been through a wide variety of situations, wide variety of feelings, despite one parent sitting over here whose child died in a car accident and had died within two days of being in the hospital. And there was another parent over here whose child had been sick for 16 years and had entered palliative care many years before, died at home on hospice. Um, their experience could be seen as very similar, right? But the thing I started to pick out was that the parents who had prepared for death so the parents who'd either had really good quality palliative care, had people question them, you know, and ask, what does quality of life mean to you? What do you want for your child? Um, what's a good day look like? Get to know their children. Um, married parents or parents who were coupled who specifically had couples counseling to um, mediate differences that they had. Um, because inevitably, when you're making really difficult decisions for your child who's at end of life or could possibly die, um, you're going to have differences, right? So parents who had had that prep work before, beforehand had had the time to think about, even if at the time that they were asked at bedside, what do you want, um, all of those questions. Maybe they didn't have an answer, but they had started thinking about it. Those parents had better uh, mental health and social outcomes than the parents whose children had either died suddenly or who had not had those discussions with people. Um, we, I started seeing, especially around the time, maybe like six years ago, five or six years ago, when palliative care in our hospital started becoming more and more entrenched, um, I started hearing parents start saying that they were proud of the death that their child had had, that they'd had a good death, that they were glad that they had had um, discussions with people, even if they didn't feel ready at that moment for people to broach that topic, they were grateful that they did. Um, and there were parents who would tell me, I was such a jerk. Like, I wish I could go back and say, I'm sorry to all the doctors and the nurses I yelled at, and I hope they know it wasn't personal, but I'm glad that they asked me these questions. Or I'm glad that they brought up the word, like, we are worried your child could die. We're worried that these things might happen. They were grateful that people had said those things. Um, and so for the parents I've worked with, the advice that I have been given and that they would give to other uh, medical providers is say the difficult things. They all know when people are hiding them from it. They all know when people are dancing around it. Um, be compassionate and realize that really the dance in grief and bereavement and in medicine before death, the dance is about building a relationship. Uh, knowing that child, having things about that child that you remember, knowing that family, how do they process information? You know, it's hard to give advice simple and say, say this, this, and this, because really you just have to know who you're talking to. Um, and 
be able to deliver information in a way that they, you know, they can process as much as possible. There's a lot of wisdom that just that concept of leading into these difficult conversations because kind of your own projected awkwardness or your projected angst about having this conversation. And even those inside itself sometimes does a lot of harm to people. Even if they get angry, you would think angry. The reaction is more than free uncertainty. Right. They're not angry at you, they're angry at the situation. Right. So let me ask you uh, as a as a nurse, you know, how is how is it different on the bedside for nurses compared to physicians or other members of the care team and the unique role that nurses have in really addressing patient and family comfort at the end of life? In the hospital based, the difference I would have to say is related to that relationship that that nurse has within a 12-hour shift. They know the family, the family trusts them, or doesn't necessarily. It depends on that establishment of rapport that they're building with each other. So it's very important for that nurse to understand what kind of questions to really try and go in when speaking to the family members. And understand those, that small talk which many times physicians are like, you're just in there talking about nothing. But in reality, you are getting to know the family and the family is getting to know you. And it takes time to establish that rapport and that relationship with these family members. So at the bedside, I'd say that that nurse is crucial. That key point of understanding which way to go with the family when you're talking or discussing about what's happening with the treatments that are going to happen, that are going to be occurring. The treatments that the physicians are coming in and speaking to the families about. Does that family really want it? What is the nurse, what has the family been telling the patients or rather the nurse about what it is that they want? Do they want it? Do they not? What's the confusion? Where have they been going with these conversations? Because it's the nurse at the bedside who is going to share with them what is happening and help decipher the science and the technology and the intricate medical verbiage that comes across to those families. Um, just this morning, actually, I was sitting there speaking to a family member, and she said, I see these doctors coming in, and I don't even know who they are. They start talking to me, but only one or two of them do I remember because they took the time to sit down and talk to me, not tell me about what kind of a treatment we were going to be doing. I'm scared. They have a child who is laying in bed with a severed spinal column, and they're going to be doing a trike suit. It just... It doesn't make sense. It's a Hispanic family, and if you can't tell, I'm not really a Mueller. I am an Ibarra, which is Latino. And it really makes a difference when you sit down and you start speaking to these families in their own language. And if you can't, then take the time with an interpreter to sit down and get to know who they are and just understand where they're coming from for the betterment of the child and the betterment of the family members. Now, as a hospice nurse at the side of a family going into the homes at many times, these families, there have been moments where I get the stance of, I know he's dying, what are you going to do? And then you watch the process as you keep coming week after week after week of, I'm just going to come and play Uno with your son, your 14-year-old. And that 14-year-old begins to open up about the things that he hasn't been telling his mom about. And then mom serves me a cup of tea and starts telling me about the things she hasn't told her son. And then you bring them together and you play Uno with both of them. Yes, this happens. Love Uno, by the way. Um, you start talking to them, and then you look at them and go, you know what, guys? Uno, damn it. It's about time you start talking to each other about what you have been sharing with me. And you open them up, and you start bringing them together, and then you find out, well, doggone it. He's been in pain, and he is hurting. 
It's about establishing that rapport that Dr. Tremonti was talking about. You've got to get to know the people that you're working with. I have to ask both Cassie and also Nicola, because you both have oftentimes struggled seats and a deeper relationship or a relationship that doesn't have that barrier of what is the doctor, right? People yeah. are very, very fearful sometimes to tell the doctor that they're upset. with one time who told me that the most impactful thing that a physician ever told her, um, her child had gastroschisis, much more severe at birth than they had anticipated it would be. Um, they kind of thought they would deliver in our labor and delivery unit and he would have a, a surgery and he would be fine for the rest of his life for the most part. And when he was born, a huge part of his bowel was dead and it was very clear that he was going to either suffer or not live very long. And they were just shocked with this new baby, right? And she had a physician, a surgeon, who sat down with her and as she was processing, told her there are worse things in life than death. And so that she uh, carried her throughout the whole thing and then now has carried her, you know, she's changed her career path. She was a special education teacher and now she's a death doula. And so just, I think, the willingness of a physician to sit down and give that pearl of wisdom and also to acknowledge what was going on with her child, I think, was really important to her. So, mm -hmm. um, I would have to say it, and, and unfortunately this happens on a regular basis, my colleagues will tell you the same thing, um, their own fear of death and not being able to go in and speak to the family bluntly and use the word die instead of, well, and circling around the bush about what is happening. And we have these options, but we're not, you know, this, this is where we're going. Well, he's going to die. And it's the same process of if the parents ask the doctor, is my child going to die? Well, we do have these options here. These are the, the buffet of treatments that we can do and completely circle around from the actual discussion of death. I don't know if you guys realize this, but our medical society and our society in general believes that death is optional because of all those treatments. And it's something that we don't realize that we are going to all, we're not immortal, guys. We're going to all die. Well, and sometimes there are families that we will have people, the whole medical staff, all kinds of people will tell people over and over and over again because they're not getting it. They don't understand. They don't get the severity of what's going on, right? Um, but I think what's really important is just to recognize that maybe they get it more than you realize and they're processing, or maybe they don't want to speak to you about that, right? That we don't have to hammer things into families mm -hmm. over and over and over again, that we can um, be gentle and kind with people and recognize that these are their lives and they're making really difficult decisions and they need some time and some space possibly sometimes to make those decisions. Early on in my hospice career as a nurse, I was, speaking to a mom who looked at me and said, my child is eight. I was not given the choice of being able to provide her any options of a G-tube feed. They said she has to do it. There is no other choice. At least that's what she said in her mind. Many times the physicians are really good about telling them, well, this is what you're going to do, but this is what you should do. Whatever the case, this mom basically said, I am now here looking at you with a child who the physicians want me to go in and take her take her in and have surgical orthopedics, which is not going to make her any better. This is early on in my hospice career. And she said, I just want to stop her feeds. And I was a nervous Millie at the time because I'm like, you, you want to do what? Why would you want to stop her G-tube feeds? Her G-tube feeds are what's keeping her alive. She said, but that's just it. I can't continue to do this. I am on welfare. 
I am not able to do anything else but continue to help care for my child. We have a miserable time of being able to continue to live. And she's miserable. She's in pain on a regular basis. And so essentially it was at that point, we didn't withhold treatment because she had case workers on her, on her case where she had to not stop withdrawals, but realized that if her child continued to suffer, she had the option of not pursuing the orthopedic surgery and making sure that she was just comfortable and focused more on just enjoying life with her enjoying the small things that she was doing, living life the best that she could, and then basically essentially ended up going a route where she ended up with an infection, and she said, am I able to just allow her to peacefully go? And I said, that's the natural process, yes. And she wasn't tolerating her feeds, and we were able, she lasted, I'd say, about six months approximately. So if you're looking at it, it's interesting because you're sort of um, starting out as an intensivist, which I think many people would think is almost the polar opposite of palliative care, but then coming to palliative care. I'm interested to hear kind of the, the reasons why you made that decision uh, to work in intensivist and palliative care Yeah, I think um, they're definitely much more closely linked than you realize. Um, I did my training at the University of Pittsburgh. It's a big transplant center. It was, um, at the time, one of the few places that did liver small bowel for children transplants, right? And those kids early on had really, really, um, they suffered a lot. There were some good wins, but they <clears throat> suffered a lot. And I think just in, in the course of what I saw and what I heard from the families and the kids, one of uh, my favorite patients ever, she was three, and she had um, gotten a small bowel transplant, got often a kind of systemic reaction where she had a ton of flu that would build up in her lungs. She also had a dynamic heart condition that would make that worse. And she looked at me one day and she said, Kim, I need the tube. And I, she meant the breathing tube because she had the breathing tube put in so many times and been on the ventilator so many times. And her parents, right? Just thinking back of all of those vignettes and experiences made me realize my job as an, as an intensivist is twofold. First, it's to fight for the cure or alleviate, alleviate the illness, right? When that becomes something that's not going to happen because that disease is unrelenting, the docs often know, and you're right, they're afraid. Like, they, it's hard to admit. But then I realized my job then is to help the family and the patient have as little suffering and have as much warning as they can get so we can try and make it as good as we can for them. The, the thing that really kicked me from the ICU into palliative care was my own personal experience, and it was with my dad. So I did a neurointensive care fellowship. I thought I knew a lot, right? My dad had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. He actually was Swedish. Has subarachnoid hemorrhage, and he went on the roller coaster of three months of awful, unexpected push and pull, almost better setback, almost better setback. I will tell you guys, you might you might laugh, you might not. The first palliative care person I met as a family member, I really wanted to deck her. I really did. I was so mad at her for showing up in his room. And I'd ask, I'd been asking for like a month because palliative care was hard to come by in Swedish then. I was asking for a month. Can I please, please talk to someone in palliative? Well, we can do hospice. I don't want to do hospice. I want palliative. I want someone to help me make these decisions. I want to understand how I make the decisions that are in line with the values. I don't want you to ask me if, if he should be intubated for aspiration pneumonia. I want to tell you he doesn't want to live on a ventilator. And I want you as the intensivist to say, then we shouldn't put the tube in, right? Finding a doc who was brave enough to do that is a hard thing, right? It's, it's not as hard as it used to be, I don't think, but it's still a hard thing. And so it was palliative care. Once she came back to do the actual consults, it was palliative care and talking through who is my dad? Who is he still, even though he's different? How do I grieve what he's lost and celebrate what we still have 
And I think that the parents of kids with chronic illness do this every day with a grace that I didn't have. I wish I did. I was I was the family that yelled. I was I was the one. The charge nurse was there the minute I walked in the ICU because I was going <laughs> to blow up, and they knew it, right? But I think that experience is really what got me into palliative care because I thought, you know what? I've done ICU for a long time. I know I can do that. I wonder, can I do the other? Can I help the families through? So that's what got me there. Yeah, so I work at the Denver Hospice now, and our children's program is called Footprints Children's Services. We provide palliative care and hospice care to kids in the Denver metro area. Um, I think we are privileged because there have been several organizations that have been able to provide some palliative care and hospice for kids in the area, but financially it's hard to sustain, and so they've ended up closing. And so we are, are kind of the, right now the only um, hospice and palliative care program that has pediatric-specific trained staff. So we have... Um, we have nurse case managers, we have a nurse practitioner, we have me, we have some child life specialists who are my heroes, um, I love them, um, and social worker who all have specific pediatric training to help take care of the kids. We do palliative care for kiddos, you know, in adults usually you kind of palliative care within a couple years of when you think you're going to die. For kids, they can come at any point and I like them when they come early. Because these families are trying to live with this chronic illness, and they're trying to hold all of those disappointments and all of those celebrations. And, it, you know, all of the, to me, the pandemic was educational for all of society, for what the parents of kids who are fragile do every day. Mm -hmm. All of the masking and the concern about hand washing, that's their life every day. And they just did it, right? They didn't complain about it, they just did it because... That's what they had to do for their kid. So we provide um, palliative care. And then once it becomes clear, in Colorado, for adults, it's six months or less prognosis to come to hospice. For kids, it's nine months or less. And I don't know why the state made that different, but they did. Hospice is uniquely regulated, I think, right? <laughs> it's one of those crazy intersections of, like, bureaucracy and medicine in a way that doesn't touch other specialties quite as much. And so what you can say qualifies for hospice, the government says, okay, yeah. And for kids, you're like, oh, that's kind of like the adult one. We're going to give that a go, right? So there's very specific criteria for adults with heart failure to come to hospice. For kids, it's not as much, but Medicaid almost always follows Medicare. And so you're like, oh, all right, you, you qualify. Right? We think that probably you're likely to die in the next nine months. So then they come to a hospice. It's not uncommon for kiddos to come on and off hospice, depending. They're a respiratorily fragile kid. They get a pneumonia. You think they're going to die. They go home on more support. They get better at home. They graduate off the hospice. And I think it's important for people to realize that because the word is so loaded. Yes. And the services are really helpful for the families. Same with palliative care. Palliative care is a loaded term if you're somebody who has a chronic illness. But the number of families when I was in the ICU, I got to work in two ICUs when a palliative service was being ramped up. And as an intensivist, I love palliative care. Like, to not have to help families navigate all of the emotions while you're trying to keep their kid alive is really... I loved having another service who would share that burden because they did it so much better than I could do it. Um, and the families, knowing that they have a service that's there to look at their whole kid, but not deciding whether you put the tube in or not, right? Or whether you start the blood pressure medicine or whether you list for transplant. The, the families really found it relieving and I'd love to know if you found the same thing like the families are like thank god I was so afraid to talk to my oncologist about the burden of the chemo and if we didn't do it 
because then I thought they'd give up on my kid mm-hmm. and fighting the disease. But being able to talk it through is just a huge service. And so we partner, getting back to the original topic, I got a little off track. Uh, we partner with um, the REACH team, which is the, the children's-based palliative care team. And we provide in-home and community-based services. Thank you for that service. It's so essential to have you in our great city. Okay, it's 15 minutes, roughly. Um, your turn to ask questions. So I think we're small enough group that you can just kind of raise your hand and ask, but that'd be on the ground. So, any questions? What do you see in the next five to ten years in palliative care? What do you hope happens in your field when you're looking for the future? For myself, honestly, that we start looking at the entirety of palliative care as an interdisciplinary approach. We're very heavily focused, I would say, on one or the other, and bringing in all of the other disciplines, such as social work, nursing. Um, I see very few nurses really wanting to get into it because they're so specific on their subspecialty of cardiology, orthopedics, or neurology. And yes, palliative care is also now a subspecialty. Um, So really trying to focus more on some of those disciplines, as well as our physicians and our nurse practitioners, but really growing it throughout the nation. I belong to a collaborative group right now of nurse coordinators, and many of us have actually gone through um, what we call the MSPC. There's a program here at CU that's called the Masters of Science in Palliative Community Care Specialist, and it invites all disciplines to come in and start your course there. And then, of course, our physicians go on to further finish their fellowship. So growing that part of it and really becoming a robust and incredible team throughout the nation to help families more so in what Dr. Tremonti is doing back in Michigan. Or, yes. (laughs) I'd say earlier involvement, Mm -hmm. right? Involvement at the time you're diagnosed with your chronic illness. And maybe you meet with palliative care once, and maybe you come back to them when you have a setback. It's just sort of more routine involvement so that it's le- there's less mysticism and less fear. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and closer partnerships, I think, with the subspecialist. Um, I think the film is great uh, because we just don't talk about death and we don't talk about what it's like to have a child die. Um, and so I thought it was, I think it's great that we're talking about it now because that's what I'd like to see. You know, I'd love to go with my kids to the playground and have somebody, you know, it's funny when you were saying that you say you're pediatrics first, I was thinking I do the same thing. So I tell people I work at children's and then they'll say, are you a nurse? And I'll say, no, I'm a social worker. And then they'll say, what unit do you work on? And then I'll tell them why well, I'm the grief counselor there. And I would love to get to a point in five or 10 years where people aren't like, oh, you're an angel. Yeah. Oh. yeah. How do you do what you do, right? Where yeah. people are like, just they want to talk about it. Or yeah. when they're able to say, that is such a cool job. Tell me more. Or what do you like about that job, right? Where we can have the discussion about children dying and people grieving um, and not think that it's some um, terrible soul-sucking job that is so awful and sad, right? Amen to that. I lead a group (laughs) of Hispanic families in an organization here, and I said, we're going to have coffee. And they're like, coffee? Yeah, it's called a death cafe. Oh, God, no. What do you mean? So now I call it cafecito, which basically means coffee. But I'm like, no, it's cafecito de la muerte. It's death cafe. And they're like, okay, It's spread now where they want to come in and talk about death and dying. It's so important and they want to talk about it. They have this need to really discuss about, I want to share with my kids how it is that I want to die. They're older. And then others who have had experiences with kids who have these chronic illnesses and they feel so comfortable being able to share what they're doing in their family and how this has helped them. So, yes. People will grieve better. We're all going to grieve. We're all going to lose. At one point. There's going to be a death. There's going to be a divorce. There's going to be something that happens. Our house is going to burn down, right? So if we can start the um, conversation 
around death and loss and grieving and feelings and all of those things, then people can do it better, right? It's less shameful. We can have community around us, and that's when people do best. So, And teaching our physicians about advanced palliative care, advanced care planning. We have got to start talking more about what do you want? What's important to you? Sorry, I got on my soapbox. No, that's okay. Um, I guess from my perspective, um, I think there was a, a time I was like a little bit more like changing policies, changing the hospice benefit, which like the Affordable Care Act made some changes and they're not great. Um, but I, I, I guess I, I maybe tied to the movie a little bit to the pandemic. I, I think right now, my real hope for the next five years is just we talk about all of this more. I'm actually not too... Um, it's not out of cynicism. Like I, maybe we aren't like my field isn't on the front page right now. Like I think, you know, I look at again, like in, in the United States, about 40,000 kids die a year, you know, COVID killed a, a million people. And so that's, you know, there's so much to learn from that. And I guess I, like, I, I think learning about dying and caring for people and what people want and talking about things beforehand. So I am like right now, I'm more in a, in a cultural, like, let's talk about more, which I like the film. I like, I like, like, let's, let's open the conversation again. I think people maybe are in a little bit of place that there's space for that now. Um, I, I think especially right now, like policy and politics and, and Supreme courts and changing uh, healthcare, I feel like, um, seems a, a little more um, than I can bite off right now. And there's just like the world is so, so polarized and, and everything that maybe this can bring people a little bit back together and we can find our humanity. So I guess I, I didn't, yeah, I hope it's a little more, we're just more able to talk that we're in a phase here, not of like a boom of, of a lot of, you know, research or change, but just a little, okay, now everybody digest this and like, let's, Let's have a period of, of, of reflection on, on what we've all been through. Um, you know, right now it's like, like internationally. Um, but uh, I guess that's, that's where I, I, my, my little fruit is. I, oh, I was going to say one other thing. The other thing on that cultural thing, just because I have small children, like younger children, um, what I do think is really being taught to children really well nowadays, like, is empathy, um, uh, uh, learning about disabled people, and, and even, like, different different genders, different backgrounds, and, and, and I really do feel like the, the youth of, of the world, maybe there's something there, and I think their experience, again, of COVID, and they, they, they were, again, maybe exposed to more losses, more grandparent losses, and everything. I, I, I have a lot of hope in that generation and where that'll come from. And that 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 maybe some of the, the the bad parts of what's going on nowadays with with mental illness and um, mental health and and drug addictions and you know I think there was this period of, of of seeking a lot of other ways to support each other that I feel like like kids are are different I don't know if that's like just because I'm hopeful for my kids but I just the way they talk um, the books they read. You know the, the 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 amount of like be kind mm-hmm. um, kind of speech that's there that maybe this is gonna build up mm-hmm. and and again I think that as a generation COVID taught them in a scary way to be afraid of dying um, to be afraid of getting other people sick so like all the little kids not being around their grandparents all this and having to understand why like I, it's a it was a hard lesson but I feel like there's there is a value there mm-hmm. um, of thinking about the other person. I've been seeing some really awful head toxins. I'll do it on the side. I think that is actually really good. You know, I was so kids as well. I do that stuff a lot. I just talk a lot about kindness. It seems like I don't think I talk about kindness when I was their age at all. You mentioned something about the international community. Is there any country you feel like is doing palliative care either the U.S. or otherwise, or someone that you're looking for? Um, like we were talking about earlier, and um, it's interesting, uh, Martin in the film, um, his family, um, they really, imbr- like part of what defined um, Amy and Robert prior to having kids was that they traveled, and it was a huge part of their lives. 
um, and they were really into professional soccer. And again, she she reflects like so. You know, he came down with his illness about at about six months. He lived till he was eight, um, and they brought him everywhere. So he like Cuba. He went uh, to Thailand. He went to. Um, and it was interesting hearing them come back. And I will say that what is regrettable to me is I think the United States is very behind Europe in the in their openness for children with neuro, like for disabilities in general. Um, that they were like you know the like handicap accessible Ubers was like an app. Um, even like the airports had adult changing stations. Um, just a lot more acceptance, and they felt really accepted there. Um, we were talking, even though now it's it's actually a long time ago, which is actually pathetic because when I was entering in 2006, I spent time in England. At that time, they were saying there were 49 pediatric, um, they wouldn't call them necessarily hospices, they were more like respite homes. But there were 49 in England, which is like the size of Michigan. And at that time, there were three in North America. And... And a lot of the like their their philosophies was like understanding that families need a break, that they needed these safe places, like that that where you get a combination of of pretty aggressive medical care, but with a flavor of acceptance of what might happen. So I I will say I think we're kind of woefully behind in that, and 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 maybe that's the one illogically that we're behind in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think like when you go, like we're ahead, like we have more access to opioids than mm-hmm. in Africa. We have more other things, but like, it's it's kind of pathetic to me that that, that we are, are still really behind and that, that segment of our population is not as embraced as we think, even in children's hospitals, I would say. Um, in my own children's hospital, like there's there's Absolutely. one adult changing station. And like, I, I, like half of my kids are I absolutely agree with you. It was in in England in the 90s that I was introduced to a group of hospice and palliative care nurses that took me in as an American and really trying to learn what they were doing. And it just, it, it floors me coming back here to find out that we didn't have all of the resources that these families did have available to them. They struggled to get them in to do a lot of the surgeries, but if these children had the chronic illnesses, they would continue to just take care of them and love them and just be with them, but they needed that break. So some of the kids, I didn't know maybe a couple, if I would, at that point, that took them off to a respite home and would be there for a little while. Most of them were based Cambridge, London area, is where they were at. We lived two hours north of London, which was in Peterborough, and it was very focused for the adult population, more so than anything. It was during this time that I learned my father also was dying, and he was immediately put into hospice, which only lasted maybe about two months, if you will. We were in there for six months. Uh, I was back home. But either way, when you look at it, the the help, the assistance, the loving cultural family of palliative and hospice care was more robust in England than it was back in the States. And it still is. And I would also say, like, the other thing is I think the United States just culturally is, like, still and remains and maybe is even continuing on a path of worsening. Like, it's, like, very me-focused. Yeah. Um, like what's in it for me on, a, on an international basis, on a state-by-state basis, on a house-by-house basis, um, where I, it does seem that the, much of the rest of the world remains a little bit more community-focused, yes. family-focused. How, how is this good for, for all of us? And I, I hope that things could shift that way, but I guess it's some of the cultural things. When we see other families from different cultures coming into our hospital, we tend to forget that they come with many families and we have to remind them. At least I see it in our community as far as our colleagues go. It's so important to really refocus and say, well, no, they've got an aunt, an uncle, and a a brother who are really the ones that are part of that decision-making factor, and we must bring them towards that. And for after-care counseling, right? So after-death grief counseling, currently there is no uh, code in the DSM that is for grief. 
So um, if I wanted to go into private counseling, I could not charge insurance right now for grief counseling because I have to give them a diagnosis, right? So I could give them adjustment disorder for a couple of sessions. I think it's a month or two. Um, then possibly I could diagnose them with major de depressive disorder because they took the grief and bereavement qualifier out. Ethically, I know they're not, they're not depressed, they're grieving, they're very different neurologically in the processes that are going on, right? Um, in the future DSM, we will have prolonged grief disorder, which then I can bill for, but geez, now we've pathologized everything so that parents can get insurance to pay for something that's actually happening that's a very natural response, right? So we, because we're in this diagnosis um, insurance pays for diagnosis, you pay for your private insurance cycle, um, it's really hard to get grief counseling for a lot of families afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and if it is, and even if you have insurance, then suddenly you have to pay 25 to $50, or maybe you have this huge deductible to be seen once a week for an hour a week. Um, it's just, I think it's pretty backwards. I always feel pretty uh, demoralized when I have to give a family a resource for the community that they live in, knowing that they don't have insurance or perhaps they can't afford that. And they certainly can't afford $150 an hour, $300 an hour private pay for grief counseling, right? So um, our mental health services are certainly lacking in that sense. I think one of the ways, it's, it's interesting to me working here that Colorado is considered a leader in some ways for pediatric palliative care because there's a waiver that Medicaid provides, which is called the um, Children with Life-Limiting Illness Waiver, right? There's a, there's a number of pediatric waivers, and please don't ask me to speak to them because I always get it wrong. <laughs> the one that I know is the CLLI waiver because we provide, we're a, we're a um, state-registered provider for that. So if you qualify, which means just that a doctor is willing to say, we think you're going to die of your illness before you reach adulthood, right? It's not a high bar to get in. Um, then you can be followed, and if you have Medicaid, which most all these kids do, is even if it's a secondary, then you can have the waiver. On the waiver, you can get a contracted agency to provide massage therapy in your home, to provide art therapy, music therapy, um, counseling it's very it's, it's interesting because as all the providers think it really it really should be medical heavy right mm -hmm. it should really be treatment heavy and the the way that it's written it's very counseling heavy and so you get social work counseling you get bereavement counseling you can get anticipatory bereavement counseling right um and it's it's uh it's a it's a really good service that at least for a number of years it was held up as sort of the leader across the nation in Colorado and it's funny because I look at what our families need and it's woefully inadequate but it's way better than not having anything Values 
I guess what I would say, first of all, like I, I have like a really soft spot for like the adolescents and young adults um, that are facing these kinds of things. I think there's like an incredible amount of amount of like wisdom that they have. Um, and like, we are all like, I think like we include people at their, like to their developmental level. And like a lot of people have this like, well, you know, like if they're under 18, do you include them? Like, it depends on like how smart and engaged and like, and by it really mean how intelligent they are about their eyes, but whatever level. And I, you might have an eight year old that can guide some discussion and decisions about their body. And I might have some 20 year olds who can't. Um, and, but I, I guess, um, I, what, I guess what I have the soft spot for a lot of that, that group is this, um, it's the real, like, the real poignant challenges of being like a teenager, 20-year-old person who really, from, a, like, like from their peers, from a developmental level, they're, they're kind of supposed to be rebelling against their family, um, gaining independence, thinking about things like growing up and getting laid and going to college and all of these things. They have the, the lack of wisdom of that period of time where you feel like you're invincible, that, that, that even though you can understand why this happened, there's still that like, but not to me, um, and that inner debate. And yet, and yet some like real freedom in philosophizing, so often like not tied to some of the constructs of, other, of their parents. I, I think whenever I talk with those kids, 90% of what drives them is they just don't want to make their families cry. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that's a huge part of, of how they're decision making. But then there are these these other kind of like they make really like dumb decisions like other teenagers, but they're like <laughs> with really like it's really hard to talk about the 20-year-old um, with muscular dystrophy who's who's approaching dying and, and kind of like doesn't want to talk about it. Because they're like, all my friends are doing all these other things. And it, those really kind of sad moments of like, I, to really like have the understanding and the be, ability to get it. And yet have a little bit that screw loose, that adolescent screw loose that it, 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 you can see the struggle there. But I have like a really, I don't know, I have a really like, like a, a soft spot for that, that um, patient population. I will say something like they're probably some of the most challenging patients to work with and some of the dynamics if they're not in agreement with their parents, but also some of like the most rewarding and probably like the, like the, like the, the moments of like real pure wisdom that comes through. I don't know. What comes to mind is a 10 year old that I was the hospice nurse walked in um, and she looked at me and she's coloring and she's like, so I know why you're here. Mom just ran to the bathroom to cry. And so now I just, you know, you're going to help me because you're going to make a will with me. And I'm like, okay. So yeah, that wisdom that you're talking about is very real. And when you have 10 year olds in the hospital and you're talking to them about palliative care and what their wishes are and they're voicing their wishes and they're just like, the only thing I want is for mom and dad to stop crying. I just want to go outside and play. I want to go and hang out with my brother or hang out with my older sister. It's, that's what matters, and they've taught me, these children have taught me how to truly live life. Sometimes I forget because I'm an adult and I'm a stubborn, rebellious adult. So turning back to like she gestured children. to me. It's like I'm also a stubborn, rebellious You're the one adult. that said it. I understand. This is funny. I'm older, respect me. Yeah, I mean, I think what they said, right? Like there's developmentally, each family's different. Each kid is different. We take care of a lot of young adults. We take care of adults with congenital illness, right? And so, you know, we've got all ages and all developmental levels. And I think the benefit of palliative care is the longitudinal relationship and getting to a point where you get to know and you get the trust of different members of the family and you can see where they're potentially coping differently or on different pages and then you know, trying to bring them together. Oh, just like a, like what, a story that comes to mind, I was taking care of an 18 year old boy uh, or man um, and uh, who, who uh, had, had terminal cancer and we were talking about um, I identified durable power of attorney, and he had a couple of different people in his lives, and they, I knew that they all had kind of 
different philosophies. And I was, I, so I kind of brought it up again and he was like, so like, what's this? Like, why do people keep asking me? He's like, he's like, is this like, like, so like if I can't like make decisions and he's like, I guess it'll be my mom. And I was like, okay. And I was like, it's not coming. She's like, but she's not going to do what I want. And I was like, well, that, that, that might not be the right choice then. And I was like, what do you mean? His mom's there. And I like, bless his heart. He was like, I was like, what do you mean? And she's, he said, and I quote, well, if I'm a tomato, she won't let me die. And I was, I had to like clarify for a second. I was like, I think what you're saying is that if you were in a vegetative state <laughs> and you like weren't able to, to make decisions that you're afraid your mom would keep you alive when you wanted, like when you would want to die. He's like, yeah, she'll never let me die. And I was like, well, I'm happy. But that was like a really interesting, but that was an interesting thing because, uh, I was like, well, then you might not want to pick her. She lucky had a, she had at least a sense of humor about it and was open to somebody else. But I was like, or I think you guys should like talk about this more. I was like, that's a pretty good directive. So I'm like, I'm happy to help your mom if you ever get into that, like a vegetative state. I, you know, I, and then I, I was like, I think that's really unlikely given your cancer. I, I think that, that that wouldn't happen. But anyway, um, and that that was that was one that came around. I remember having another conversation with a, a boy too. That like we, um, I haven't used it very much. There's a there's a like a preform thing that for adults it's called Five Wishes to help people kind of work with through some advanced directive type discussions. And then they created um, like Voicing My Choices, which was more mm -hmm. for the teen population. And I haven't used it a ton, but for this one family, I. I thought it was a, like a, they were the right fit for it. And they actually went through it and they like very much like a homework assignment. And I remember they had a lot of debate because he wanted to be cremated and the whole family wanted burials. And it was like kind of shocking to both of them. And he was like, hell no, are you burying me? And the family was like, that's where all of you're going with everybody else. And like they had this lovely debate. And, and it was nice though. And we like reflected later and even at the funeral, the family was so appreciative. And I remember I've been talking with him. I was like, see, these conversations are helpful because your family, after they die, like they're going to be like, what would he have wanted? And then they were like able to cremate you. And it was kind of its own joke too, because it was, it was like, he got what he wanted, like uh, aside from the family's like wishes. And I think actually that was really helpful for them that they felt like empowered. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but it was, I think I think sometimes that could be really useful and in, in giving that to kids that like I think they're afraid often to talk about it, but actually like they can really help their families um, saying something just like we all can because uh, it is really hard after somebody dies like what would they have wanted mm -hmm. we're, you know we're from simple things like what do you want to wear and again yeah. my patient who didn't want to be a tomato he had a ridiculous t-shirt in it like he wore this t-shirt he picked out for himself in his casket and it was it was like along the lines of like um you you better hope i'm not a zombie it was like it was like a walking dead themed t-shirt that he was going to come back and get out and I, like, but he picked it out so bless his heart it was quite a funny that was thing. awesome one of um one of the things i love about our team is helping the like young adults or the kiddos who can say what they want, maybe sometimes achieve some items off their bucket list. Um, and I'm just going to throw this out there because the Avs just won the Stanley Cup. I don't know if any hockey fans out there, maybe not, right? Um, so there was a young, we had a young adult on service who was a huge Avs fan, loved hockey, wanted to meet some players. That's really what she wanted to do. Our team heard about it. Our amazing child life people had nothing to do with it. Amazing child life and social worker contacted the apps, worked with their organization. She got to go to two or three practice sessions. She got to meet the players. She and her family got box seats to a game. And the thing that put it over the top for me, and I grew up in Detroit, so I'm a Redlands fan at heart. It's okay that the ads won. <laughs> because she really wanted to go on a date with a cute boy. And so you know what the ads did? Two adorable eligible bachelors from their team took her and her best friend to a nice restaurant on the date. Awesome. Isn't that great? Awesome. Our palliative child life specialist and social worker worked really hard to get a young man, Duchesne's muscular, um, to a movie. We couldn't necessarily get him to a movie theater, so they built, or rather, set up our conference center and set up a movie for him hard and fast in Spanish. It was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. That was the first movie theater he had ever gone to. 
He had never been to the movies, and that was pretty amazing. He died about a month later, but he was happy as a lark. Appreciation is basically what I'm getting at here. It's appreciation for what we have and the things we take for granted sometimes. And, and, and to me, palliative care being not just about what people are afraid it's about, but about letting them go to a movie, letting them go on a date, mm-hmm. right? We had a fall festival at the, at the hospice center where some kiddos who could never trick-or-treat got to go trick-or-treating mm-hmm. in the trick-or-trunk street, right? Because they were too medically fragile or too hard to maneuver around. And I'm embarrassed to say that it just never occurred to me that some of the patients I took care of in the ICU for years would never trick-or-treat with yeah. their siblings, right? Or date. And so their sibs got to go trick-or-treating with them, right? It's, it's, a, it's a change of perspective, right? So we talk mm-hmm. about it more. And then we can talk about all of Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for letting us be up here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs>